So um, I want to tell you all a story. A friend of mine, Matt Howell, told me this story. Um, and he tells a story. He's, he's got a friend who lives in New York City, and she's a pro- professional photographer. And um, one day her dog dies. And it's this really heavy golden retriever. Weighs like 80 pounds. And she lives in Manhattan. And um, what do you do with an 80-pound dead golden retriever in Manhattan? Um, so she calls her vet, and she eventually gets the number for the dog morgue, um, or the, the incinerator, actually. That's what they do in Manhattan. And they don't do pickup. So um, she then figures out that she's got to take this dog to the subway and then travel across town to take it to the incinerator uh, to like dispose of her, her dead dog. Um, the problem is that she lives on the third floor of her building, and it only has stairs. Uh, there's no elevator. So how do you transport an 80-pound corpse? So she, she's a photographer. She's got this big bag for her photography stuff, and so she empties it all out, and she puts her dog... I mean, this is so sad, and, and so... <laughs> She puts her dog in the camera bag because it's big enough to carry, and so she, she just throws this thing over her shoulder and carries it down the three flights of steps, carries it down the street, down to the subway station, down the steps, into the subway station, and she's waiting for the subway. And this man comes up to her, looks her in the eye and says, hey, that bag looks really heavy. Can I help you carry that? She's like, oh, sure, thanks. And then he punches her in the face takes the bag and runs <laughs> thinking that he just stole thousands of dollars of camera equipment imagine his surprise when he opens that camera bag and her i mean she got rid of her dead dog problem i mean it's great um so i've been waiting oh yeah all right um i've been waiting so long to tell you all that story because it's so good well here's why i tell it here's why i tell the story i think that uh, a lot of life feels what, like what that man experienced. We, we think that we're getting a new camera, but then we open the bag and it's just a dead golden retriever. <laughs> what I mean by that is um, we work hard, like we work really hard to receive some sort of blessing and it ends up feeling like a curse. Um, we feel this socially. So, right, the party scene promises glory. It promises a good life. But a number of you have told me that it just chews you up and spits you out. It promises blessing, but it never delivers. It promises blessing, but you feel cursed. Or um, you feel this academically, right? You work so hard to be blessed with an A, but at what cost? The cost of your sleep, your physical health, your friendships, vitamin D. You emerge in May, having not been outside for four months, right? Um, you feel this personally, Right, you think to yourself, if only I have the perfect body, um, I'll be okay, I'll be blessed. Or um, if I can order my schedule or my time perfectly, then I'll be blessed. Then all will feel right with the universe. Maybe you started this semester, saw 2017 as being ripe with possibility, but now we're in the middle of April and your New Year's resolutions dangle over your head like a sword, condemning you for not living up to your own expectations. Now in all of this, in all of life, this reveals to us that Right? Life, life really comes down to, life is about getting blessings and avoiding curses. Um, but it feels like it's up to you to secure your own blessing, blessings, to avoid the curses. It's up to you to not screw it up. And all too often, right, you think you're getting a new camera, but it ends up just being a dead golden retriever. So um, this semester, uh, we have been studying the book of Leviticus together. And as we've read this book together, 
uh, a few things have stood out to us. First, um, we've seen that God is holy. Throughout the book of Leviticus, God shouts this. One commentator writes that the whole sacrificial system reinforces this central component in Jewish worship. God says, I am holy and you are not. And second, we see that humans need atonement. Right? The sacrificial system is the, is the centerpiece of the book and where the lifeblood of animals was given as a substitute in the place of sinners. That in order for humans to be in God's presence, something had to be done about people's sin. It had to be atoned for. It had to be forgiven. And in order, for God's, in order to be in God's presence, sin had to be dealt with. And God has provided the way for this. And third, we've seen that God actually wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell with his people in love. Right, we saw this the first week of the semester. And we read the first verse of Leviticus that the Lord called Moses from inside of the tent. Meaning that Moses was outside of the tent. He couldn't be in God's presence, but God was calling to him. And then we see in Numbers, the first chapter of the book of Numbers, which is the next book after Leviticus, that God, the Lord, spoke to Moses inside the tent of meeting. Meaning that the sacrificial system actually worked. God was able to welcome his people into his presence. So here we are, we're at the end of Leviticus. um, And God wraps the whole book up in this chapter about blessings and curses. Um, and here we're actually given something called a covenant. It's a, it's a contract. It's a promise agreement that God enters into with, is, with Israel. And this is where God says, if you obey everything written here, incredible blessings will follow. But if you disobey unspeakable curses, and if you repent, God will restore you. So outline for tonight um, is that we were created for blessing um, we're cursed for disobedience, and we're restored by the love of God. So I'm going to read for us from Leviticus 26. It is printed on your uh, bright pink sheet, and you can follow along with me there. This is God's word for us tonight. Um, he gives it to us in love. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land. You shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid." And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept. You shall, keep, you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke, and made you walk upright. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you you do not listen to me, 
then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. I'll break the pride of your power. I'll make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. If then you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I'll let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children, destroy your livestock, make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their circumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob. I'll remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we ask for your help to make sense of this. Um, Lord, there are hard things in here. Help us to see your word is good and beautiful and a gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first section of chapter 26 focuses on the blessings that come from obedience to God. In verse 3, God says, If you walk in my statutes, if you obey my commandments, then these blessings will follow you. And then the blessings actually increase as the passage goes. Um, Verse 4 says he'll give rain, which means that the land will be fruitful, which is very important for an agrarian society. Verse 6 says he'll give peace. There will be no fear. There will be no beasts, no war. And not only will there be no war, God will chase away their enemies. The Lord himself will fight their battles. And what he's saying here is that the land will be secure, that everything that you need to live as a human will be provided. Now, that might not sound like much to our modern American ears, but for so many of our global neighbors who suffer from food security, who are threatened daily by violence, to them, this sort of promise of security in the land would be too good to be true. And it's not just security that's promised here, it's abundance. And the language and imagery of this would register deep within the imagination of the people of Israel. For God here is speaking in these echoes of Eden, His promise is nothing less than the restoration of all things in himself. So the way that the Bible tells the story is that in the beginning, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelled together in love, self-giving, other-centered love, and that out of this love, God created all things. And the picture of creation given to us in the first chapters of the Bible is that of God as a king, that of a king, God as a king cultivating a garden of delights. And that in the center of this garden, in the land, God the king placed humans. He made them in his image, he created them in love, and he gave them this command, be fruitful and multiply. And God made his dwelling with his people and he delighted in them. If you look at verse 9, if you can see it, um, the blessing that God promises Israel in their obedience is this, that he will make his dwelling among, among you. I will make my dwelling among you, my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you. I will be your God. You shall be my people. I am the Lord your God. He goes on to say, I have rescued you from Egypt. I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. God is saying to his people, I have rescued rescued you from slavery. I have restored your dignity. So do you know what Leviticus is for? I mean, like why all the rules and rituals, all the meticulous laws and sacrificial regulation? It's so that God could restore his people to himself so that he could walk among them and be their God. God is saying as loudly as he can, you were created for blessing, 
and that blessing is found in and through me. We were created to be blessed. Um, Verses 11 and 12 is a picture of full blessing, dwelling with God in peace, soul to soul, deep abiding love, no hint of malice. Y'all, this is what you were created for. We were created for blessing. I remember when Leo, my five-year-old son, was born, and the nurses, you know the nurses or Mary Clark, told me to, to take my shirt off, and then they gave me my newborn son to place on my chest, skin to skin, soul to soul, just a few minutes old. And this, this is what God is talking about. This, this is what we were created for, this sort of this intimacy with our Father. But instead of this blessing, so often our lives feel like they're cursed. So often our lives feel like they're cursed. In the second section of this passage, God says to Israel, if you don't listen to me, if you don't obey me, if your soul hates and is disgusted with my rules, then this is what I'll do to you. And then God outlines this increasing um, set of curses that as disobedience continues, things get worse. The longer Israel... Israel's heart is turned away from God, the worse things get. And the curses climax with the dissolution of all human relationships, disfiguring human beings beyond recognizable dignity. Now, if the story of the Bible is that God, who is love, created humans as creatures of his love to dwell in his love, why this? I found myself asking this question this weekend. God, why did you do it this way? I mean, the stuff written in this section is horrible. I will give the sword to your enemies. I will let loose the wild beasts against you. And the stuff that we didn't read gets even worse. God says he will destroy cities and things will get so bad that his people will cannibalize one another out of starvation. And I think the answer that I arrived at after much thought and prayer um, has to do with the nature of sin and the power of our loves. The power of our loves. St. Augustine, who was a 4th, 5th century um, bishop in North Africa, Um, said that it's all really about our enjoyment. And he makes this distinction between enjoying a thing and using a thing. He writes that as humans, we are designed to enjoy eternal, eternal, unchangeable things, mainly that we're designed to enjoy God. And this is just the way that our hearts are created, that our hearts will not rest until they rest in God. And that sin is primarily a function or a dysfunction of our loves. The problem is not that we've stopped loving, but that we love the wrong things, that we enjoy the wrong things. Now, God created all things to be useful to us in our enjoyment of God. That all the things in this world, the land and the trees, our food and drink, our work and our rest, the animals we love, the friends and family who love us, all things are created to be useful in our enjoyment of God. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Whatever you do, whether eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what this means is that by design, our wealth is designed to be useful to the enjoyment of God. Your academic work is to be useful for the enjoyment of God. Your relationships are designed to be useful to your enjoyment of God. Your bodies are created for you to enjoy God. But that's not how it goes most of the time, is it? What do we do instead? Well, Romans 1 tells us that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And we worship and serve the creature rather than creator. What this means is that rather than using all the things that we have for the enjoyment of God, our hearts love the wrong things. And we look for blessings in the enjoyment of created things. 
right? Rather than using our money for enjoying God, we hoard it and we spend it selfishly. Rather than using your academics for enjoying God, you freak out and stress out about your grades because you believe they exist for your resume, not for God's glory. Rather than using your relationships for enjoying God, you've settled for enjoying each other, consuming one another in lust. And as many of you have experienced, this destroys relationships. They can't handle this weight. So what God is saying here in Leviticus 26 is that the punishment for disordered love, the curse for disobedience, is that we just eat the fruit of our disordered loves. That we just go on loving the wrong things, and that in of itself is a curse. We see this language in the language in Leviticus 26. Um, This word abhor is used five times in the chapter. In verse 15, we see that the curses come as, God says, as your soul abhors God and his rules. Now, this word abhor in English, it means to regard with disgust or hatred. In the Hebrew here is, um, in one of its verb forms, the word means to wash out with hot water. So the image that this gives us, think about if you're doing the dishes or if you haven't done the dishes and the dishes have been sitting in the sink for a while and then the food hardens on the dishes, right? The only way to clean the dishes is to pour hot water on them. The only way to get rid of the thing that you don't want is to pour boiling water on it. And and what God is saying here is that when we enjoy anything more than him, when we place anything above him in our lives, that's what's happening in our hearts, It's like we're pouring boiling water on him, attempting to expunge him from our lives. And God is saying that the result of this, this disobedience in our hearts is a curse because our hearts were created to rest in him. Now, as the story of the Bible unfolds, we learn that Israel entered into the promised land and for a time they lived there in peace and blessing. But over time, their hearts hardened and these curses came true. They were driven into exile in Babylon because their hearts abhorred the Lord. Their loves were disordered and their lives followed. But God refused to leave his people in exile. He refused for the end of the story to be the loss of his people. And the story of Israel, in a lot of ways, is your and my story. We have these disordered loves looking for blessings in the wrong places and receiving curses But y'all, that's not how Leviticus 26 ends, and that's not how the Bible ends. Leviticus 26 ends with a promise. A promise that if Israel says, I'm sorry, and returns to God, then all will be forgiven. That the life of God, that the life God calls his people to is a life of repentance, of returning to him. And God's forgiveness, we see here, is rooted in his covenant. The unbreakable promises he has made to his people. This last section we read... God is saying that he will remember the covenant he has made and therefore he will receive his people. And not just receive them, but God goes out of his way to make it clear to his people that he longs to save them from their sin. In Isaiah 30, God, in the midst of exposing Israel's sin and showing them their disordered loves and the curse that they are bringing them on themselves, bringing on themselves, God says this. He says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. God is saying to them, he's saying to me, he's saying to you, come home. Come home, all will be made well. Come home, all will be forgiven. Come home, the blessings that you long for are found in me alone. There's a a podcast you may be familiar with called This American Life. 
Um, and there's a story on the podcast a few years ago about um, an ad agency that was hired by the Colombian government to help dismantle the rebel, the rebel forces, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC um, in Spanish. Um, and their work, the work of this ad campaign um, in the Colombian jungle, their work led to hundreds of guerrilla soldiers defecting in the first real peace talks in 50 years. And so this ad agency did three different campaigns, all at Christmas time, decorating the jungle, decorating the worn paths that the soldiers walked, the rivers they traversed, um, decorating in Christmas lights and memories of home, saying to these soldiers, don't you want to be home with your family for Christmas? And the fruit of this was that in 2012, peace talks began. And they found that there were still these rebels, these guerrilla forces in the jungles. There's still people who had not yet returned home. And so for their final campaign, this ad agency realized that the reason they weren't returning home was these, these rebels were scared. They feared being rejected by their families. They were haunted by this question. At the end of the war, will, will my people take me back in? Will my own family accept me? Or will they reject me forever? And so their final campaign, which was called Mother's Voices, um, this ad agency went and found 37 moms of guerrilla fighters who were willing to give them pictures of their children. And the ad agency says this. They said it was important that they gave us pictures of the kids when they were really small because in order to protect them, we needed to make sure that only the person in the picture would be able to recognize himself. And then under the picture, they wrote, before you were a gorilla, you were my child. Before you were a gorilla, you were my child. Come back this Christmas. I'm waiting for you. And so they printed thousands of these posters, and they hung them in the towns where the gorillas moved through. They nailed them to the trees in the jungle. And the men who came home that Christmas, they didn't come home because they knew they were bad. They came home because they knew they were loved. So why Leviticus? Why does God give us this obtuse and confusing book in the Old Testament? So that we, those who have this book, might know the depth of what God has done for us in Christ. That we might see the beauty of Jesus and what he has done to call us home. So that when we see Jesus crucified and risen for us, we hear his voice. Before you were a rebel, before you were cursed, you were my child. Come home. Come home. I'm waiting for you. Galatians 3 tells us this. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So when we see this beauty, this love, Jesus substituting himself for us, and we know that we deserve the curse because of our sin, our disordered love, and we know that he has taken it on himself. We're freed. Paul says we're given the spirit of God. Our loves are restored and we can walk in the life of blessing. So what does it look like to walk in the life of blessing? Um, well, to say it succinctly, it looks like participation in the self-giving, other-centered love of God. It looks like participation in the self-giving, other-centered love of God. It looks like using the things of this world for the enjoyment of God. It looks like being blessed because you know the love of God in Christ. And it looks like repentance. It looks like saying, I'm sorry to God and returning to him again and again because you know that he loves you and you know that he has taken your curse onto himself. And a picture for us of this this year has been Taylor. 
Taylor Bird, our intern. Um, Taylor has been for us a living parable of knowing Jesus as the one who takes her curse. Where's Taylor? Over there. There you are, girl. Um, knowing the one who, no, Jesus, uh, you know that Jesus has taken your curse, receiving blessings in and through Jesus, participating in his love on campus. Um, for many of you, she has sung and danced her way into your hearts this year. She's obviously done that into her fiance, Matt's heart. Unfortunately, his heart is in Memphis, so Taylor will be leaving. Taylor, we love you. We're so thankful that God has given you to us this year, um, that he has blessed us with you. We are really sad that you're leaving. Um, but we know that his blessings will follow you wherever you go because you are a child of the covenant. Um, in closing, I just want, um, I want us to hold two images in our mind. I want you to hold two images in your mind. First, I want you to think about this man who stole the camera bag. Um, and just think about, think about it, like, like Gollum from the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, he was working so hard for a blessing. But instead, he received a curse. And second, I want you to think of that Colombian guerrilla fighter who is tired from fighting, who is ashamed from killing, who is hopeless because he'd burned every bridge with his family and his community. Think of that Colombian guerrilla soldier walking through the jungle and seeing a poster with his childhood picture on it, with the words from his mother, before you were a guerrilla, you were my child. Come home. Come home, I'm waiting for you. Friends, this is the welcome and the blessing that is yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and that you have kept the covenant for us in Christ, taking the curses onto yourself and giving us the blessing. Lord, um, we will never know the depth of your mercy and grace, but we thank you that you have done this for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.